Today on Cyberwork, A.N. Ananth of Netsurian joins us to talk about the future of SOX. Security operation centers used to look a lot more like bunkers crowded with network traffic analysts who rarely got to see the sun. Ananth sees the COVID-induced era of remote SOX to be the new reality, but also a really good way to bring new professionals in from small towns and faraway locations, making it a partial fix to the cybersecurity skills gap. Lots of good job hunt tips of this one as well, folks, so stick around for Cyberwork. Welcome to this week's episode of the Cyberwork with InfoSec podcast. Each week we talk with a different industry thought leader about cybersecurity trends, the way those trends affect the work of InfoSec professionals, while offering tips for breaking in or moving up the ladder in the cybersecurity industry. Today's guest, A.N. Ananth, is the Chief Strategy Officer and Resident Cybersecurity Evangelist at NetSurian. He is also co-creator of NetSurian's Open XDR platform. With an extensive background in product development and cybersecurity operations, he has consulted for many companies on their security and compliance strategies, audit policies, and automated reporting processes. Ananth is a leading expert in IT security and compliance with over 25 years of experience in IT control and operations uh, and speaks frequently on cybersecurity topics. Ananth holds an MSEE from the University of Texas and remains active in strategic product direction for the OpenXDR platform at NetSurian. So today's topic um, uh, was suggested by Ananth. We're going to talk about the way that uh, socks have changed changed in the last couple of years uh, with remote work uh, and teams getting more and more sort of diffuse and and not always in the same room. So we're going to talk about some of the the ramifications of that. So Ian and I, thank you very much for joining me today, and welcome to Cyberwork. Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you. Hello, all. Thanks for uh, taking time from your day to listen to this. Absolutely. Always, always appreciate that. Uh, love our listeners. So to start with, I like to get to know our guests a little by tracing their interests. So obviously you've got a, a long career in, in IT and, and security. What what first got you interested in computers and tech and and what drew you to uh, career in security? Actually, I come from the telecom world. Uh, originally okay. by, by education, I'm a double E was mm-hmm. going to do signal processing, but then the computer science department had an open assistantship and, you know, mm-hmm. money is the heart and blood for any graduate student. So that is how I got sucked in there. Right. And one thing led to another. You know, in the telecom world, this was called fault management because four mm-hmm. nines of availability is very common there, not so much in IT. And anything that can cause a fault in the network, initially it was thought to be operational and then it became a security thing. So that's my journey coming from that universe into IT security. As the networks became more open uh, and you could get hacked, you know, telecom networks are famously closed, but mm-hmm. IT networks are not. And so therefore security instead of re- is really the reason for the fault more than some operational thing, which of course can be fixed. Right, right, yeah, um, yeah. I think you're 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 definitely not the first guest I've had on who uh, was interested in a different thing and then found that securing the thing they were interested in was more interesting than the thing they were originally interested. So uh, that that definitely tra- tracks here. So um, so you know, I I tend to sort of uh, snoop around my guests' LinkedIn pages to sort of. Uh, see the story in my head of their of their career trajectory. So looking at your past experience, I see that in some ways uh, you've kind of planted your flag in the sand and stuck to it. So you were the CEO of, um, you know, the uh, Event Tracker Managed Threat Protection Platform, which is uh, now folded into NetSurion. 
2016, and now you're the chief strategy officer at NetSurion. So can you tell me about that journey uh, and any other activities or related projects you were engaged in and like about the ways that you, you've changed and grown your work from the start of Event Tracker up to the present? Sure thing. Well, it's worth noting I've been married to the same woman for 30 years and lived in the same house for 25. So I guess it's part of a pattern. Same. But really yeah. being the founder and the CEO of that product uh, allowed us uh, to evolve that product as, frankly, the industry evolved, technology evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and being your own boss is not what it's always cracked up to be, but certainly was very valuable and useful. I mean, the most important thing was if you didn't satisfy your customers, you didn't eat. And there's nothing mm-hmm. like that to focus you on what's important right. and what's selling. Um Since uh, 2016, Netsurian, through its uh, majority owner, has taken uh, a large stake. But frankly, that gave us some freedom uh, to explore other areas without being hemmed in by some of the operational concerns. You know, what's next quarter look like? How are we going to eat tomorrow? That kind of thing. That problem is now uh, solved. And so, therefore, we get to explore um, some of the more interesting things. And frankly, the A number one problem that we face today, and that is scale. It's nice mm-hmm. to do this in miniature and you have to solve every problem uh, that the big boys have. But then to be able to scale without having to be always concerned about what tomorrow's payroll is going to look like is a luxury. And it made sense, you know, to to explore that in this context. Gotcha. Um, now, can you talk about, you know, you mentioned I mentioned in your, your bio, you remain active in strategic product direction for open XDR platforms. Um, you know, but at the same time, you're chief strategy officer and, and evangelist. Do you uh, ever have sort of, uh, you know, uh, sometimes when we talk to managers and high level execs, uh, they are happy to talk with the clients, happy to learn their insights, but also kind of seem a little bummed out that they don't get to actually do the 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 the, the hands on dirty work of, of like sort of playing with the platform and stuff. Do you have uh, a balance between uh, the sort of, like you said, the the sort of making sure that, you know, the paychecks keep rolling through and, you know, the scale is there uh, with actually getting to sort of play around with the tech and, and the stuff that excited you in the first place? Indeed, that's the whole point of the strategy mm-hmm. is to define what v.next looks like. Okay. You know, and, and knowing how the, the platform's been put together and having led a lot of the teams that were involved, some of which are still active in the company, it allows me to be a bit more realistic. Otherwise, you know, mm-hmm. I, I fear that um, a strategy can be constructed pie in the sky um, without without a connection to what is actually possible, uh, what is actually practical. So I get mm-hmm. to have, you know, be sort of cockeyed. On the one side, I am mindful of the team that, that we built and yep. their capabilities and the platform and its capabilities. And on the other side, I get to see, you know, what the next generation is going to look like because there's always one. I mean, in the yeah. cyber landscape, uh, tomorrow's threats, tomorrow's uh, solution is going to be different uh, than today's. Indeed, for us, oh, yeah. we see a lot of automation. We see a lot of intelligence. Uh, I hesitate to call it artificial intelligence. <laughs> right. I'm comfortable with machine learning there you go. Um, as a way of getting to scale, especially for anomaly detection as a, as a power tool to help the teams actually manage these incredibly large volumes of data. Mm-hmm. And that's a luxury that in years past, maybe I couldn't really indulge because I was too busy looking at customers and practical problems and what's going to happen yes. next Tuesday and things of that sort. 
<laughs> uh, so uh, speaking of, of, of teams, uh, today we're going to talk about a cybersecurity role that's uh, integral to most security operations day-to-day -day existence. Uh, of course, I'm talking about the Security Operations Center, or the SOC for short. Uh, so before we talk about NetSurian's recent findings, for the benefits of our audience who are still trying to find their footing and figure out what career role within cybersecurity they want to pursue, what is the Security Operations Center and what are the day-to-day -day operations of a standard SOC? So a security operations center is warranted these days in medium to large organizations at a mm -hmm. minimum. And for small organizations, it tends to be an outsourced function because it's difficult yes. to stand up you know, for themselves. But the idea is that your network is so critical to your business process that losing it negatively impacts your business in a major way. Yes. You know, whether you're a travel agent or you're a government entity or a hospital um, or a financial institution, your IT system and its connection to vendors, customers, the websites, and so on has become very critical to your ability to conduct business. Anything that threatens it, therefore, is a major concern. And the old days of just assuming you could administer it and all would be well are, you know, well, well in well behind us. Yeah. And so a stock is a function, either built in-house or perhaps you know, co-sourced or perhaps fully outsourced, which pays attention to the security of that network. Mm -hmm. There are, if you're connected to the internet, a variety of threats that are that are there. And we are in a universe now, especially in, in the Western Hemisphere, which is always on, always broadband on. Indeed, yeah. downtime, even for a minute, is 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 a problem. Yes. And so that means that, you know, if you can get to China with one click of the mouse, but you know what? China can come to you with one click of a mouse too. So who's watching? <laughs> Yes. Who's paying attention to that stuff? That's fundamentally what a security operations center does. It focuses on the assets. It could be people. It could be public cloud. It could be software as a service like M365. Mm -hmm. It could be employees working at uh, at your company or nowadays from home remotely. Mm -hmm. It could be your own data center. Any or all, all of these are part of your asset list and a SOC would have purview over all of these assets because all of them working right. correctly is critical to your business process. So that's what a SOC is. So can you talk about the different uh, sort of the constellation of work roles within a SOC? Because I'm sure we have, you know, we have SOC analysts and SOC engineers. And so I assume there's also a, maybe a SOC manager sometimes in there. So what is what is the average number of employees in a SOC, you know, for, for most uh, medium and large businesses? So it depends on whether your SOC is operating 24-7 or no, number mm -hmm, one. Mm -hmm. um, if it is, then at least 12 people, um, assuming that you're being reasonable about time off, being sick, going yes. for training, things right. of that sort. Um, and then it also depends on what kind of SOC you're running. We've seen basic SOCs that are fundamentally about alerting from the instrumentation. We've seen intermediate SOCs that incorporate threat intelligence on top of the basic SOC and are now a little bit more proactive. And then we've seen advanced SOCs that incorporate uh, a ton of automation and new processes. So depending upon the kind of SOC you're trying to build and whether it's operating 24-7 or not, that's what governs how many people and what sorts of roles and what sorts of skills you need in the SOC today. I mean, yesterday's SOC was really, frankly, modeled after IT teams. IT teams right. especially tend to be help desk. They tended to be level-based. Mm. You know, you were a level one or a level two right. that had better skills and a level three that had even better skills. And talking to the, you know, the stakeholder inside, 
was a mm, don't really care. So they could be Neanderthals. You know, they could be knuckle draggers in the basement. And as long as they knew their IT, that was fine because they never really interacted much with the mm-hmm. outside world. So grunts and screeches were okay. In yeah. today's SOC, that's not really possible. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the modern SOC is not focused so much on levels, but is instead focused on competency or skills. And there are a variety of skills that you need to run the SOC today, which corresponds to the kinds of threats that you get. So you get hunters. You know, junior ones, senior ones, yes, but hunters who are aware and alert of what, what's going on. You get folks that are aware of threat content. You mm. get people that have the skills to, to have a meaningful discussion with either a vendor or an inside customer or a stakeholder. Of course, you have a manager, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. especially if this stuff is running 24-7. Nothing yeah. takes care of itself. So you right. need someone to pay attention to all of that. And then lastly, you need to worry about onboarding interfaces with other departments, maybe yep. IT, uh, maybe other parts of the company. And then don't forget, Training, 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 training. It's a it's a constant in our universe. So either yeah. that's being done by the manager, or if your SOC is big enough, it's actually a thing on its own. So these are some of the roles that you see in a modern SOC. Yeah, it's kind of a little society within the larger society of the organization, right? Indeed. The advantage this is it allows some degree of specialization and yep. career growth for the individuals. You know, people that have skills in threat and threat hunting don't really want to do customer interface. Yes. Uh, similarly, the guys that know about automation and curation probably don't want to sit in front of the alerts and then you know be responsible for those 24-7. Yeah. So yeah. to each his own, if you like. Right. Okay, so we were talking about how uh, you know there's a there, there's sort of a, a, a you know a group within the group aspect of uh, the sock here, and as you put it in in you know our pre-show discussions that they might work in quote like a NASA like control room, or at least there's that perception. Uh, you know, you were saying here that you have a little more interaction with uh, your stakeholders or your vendors or your clients, but um, you know, is there uh, you know? What is the sort of interaction uh, of the SOC at large with the rest of the company? Is there, I, I guess I'm also trying to get a sense of whether there's kind of a us versus them mentality, you know, that happens a lot. Like, you know, I, I certainly with help desk, I think there's that sense of like, we're, you know, we're here to, you know, you know, the IT crowd, you have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again, kind of uh, vibe. So how does, how does the SOC work uh, with regards to sort of uh, the rest of the company? First of all, I think the NASA control room concept has been overcome by coronavirus or COVID. Yes. Um, There isn't uh, a lot of places where you get together as a group and sneeze or laugh at each other. So (laughs) I'm afraid that's a thing of the past now. But, you know, the very best socks um, are attuned to the business. Yes. Rather than think of themselves as some sequestered super specialist who will sneer upon the lowly user, the ones that succeed are the ones that really understand what the business is, what risks are appropriate, and what the users are doing, what sorts of applications are in play, what's important in order to keep the railroad running. Because after all, they all serve the same badge. And so if they're not prepared to do this, then they become technologists for technologists' sake. And that's interesting, but only at the lower levels. Anywhere above the medium or higher levels, you got to talk business. You have to be able to explain how what you're doing benefits the bottom line. And without it, what would be the consequence? And ask for choices. That's what any SOC is really supposed to be good at. You know, here's what's going on. What do we want to do here as a team? I could tell you, you know, what the consequences are of do nothing 
or do this or do that, you know, option A, option B. Mm-hmm. And so a sock aside of, you know, constantly monitoring and then maybe naming and shaming some especially egregious users, the main function isn't that. The main function is to keep the business safe. For that, you need to know what the business considers valuable, important, yes. useful, appropriate. What's customary in your in your in your industry, in your vertical? So the best socks are the ones that are tightly integrated with all of those things. Now, uh, you, uh, Anant, you, you said you wanted to come on the show because of some polling that you did recently. So you recently did an informal poll on LinkedIn, uh, and many of the respondents were sock users themselves. And you said that 59% of the respondents said that the location of the sock was unimportant. And like you said, the aforementioned image of the sock as a NASA-like control center might well be obsolete, which I think is uh, provocative and intriguing. So to start, uh, do you think this move towards remote multi-location sock operations started and or accelerated during COVID and the pandemic? Or was this, do you think this was a direction that was happening before that? I mean, it was only getting distributed because of skill shortage. So you Mm -hmm. had a stock in location A, you had to think about one in location B simply because you were running dry on finding, hiring, and keeping people. But they were still essentially centralized. Maybe you followed the sun because of the way your company expanded. And so a SOC became an adjunct to your IT teams, which maybe were distributed. Mm-hmm. But the acceleration to from home was initiated by COVID. And I'll admit, I was in a fetal position a couple of years ago when it became clear that we had to send everybody home. Yeah, Because it was a new experience for us. But yes. surprise, surprise, it's actually worked out, you know, same for socks as it has for a lot of the other, you know, knowledge workers. And we're able to do this function effectively without losing a lot of our, you know, SLAs, you know, service level agreements with our, with our customers. Yeah. Um, and we're able to do it. The big plus up, if you like, has been that um, it has really opened the door to recruitment. Now, instead of yes. being stuck in the city that you're in, you can pretty much be nationwide or indeed global if that's that's of interest to you. Mm-hmm. You have to develop the skills to manage these workers, but that's a strong plus. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and that's something that we talk about on here a lot is is you know people who want to get into the industry but might be you know in a small town or you know taking care of an ailing parent and and don't have the wherewithal to move to a big tech center or something like that. So uh, that's that can only be a, a good thing to me. So um, speaking from a more technical standpoint, are there any additional security challenges in fracturing a sock into its component parts? Like, are there any restrictions on distance or time schedule or geographic location issues in building a sock team? So two things to bear in mind. One is separate the SOC team from the data. So the data that you're collecting needs to go somewhere. Um, These days, it's common to have it in public cloud. So things like AWS or Azure or Google Cloud or Oracle Cloud. Um, And that can also be distributed based on your retention requirements by nation. You know, GDPR folks tend to want it in their region. Um, North America wants to have it in their region and so on. But that's one thing, you know, keeping the data together in one place so that you can analyze it and so on. The second other part you're asking me about is the people. Where Mm -hmm. may they be? Um, it's useful to get the teams together periodically, you know, in person, mm-hmm. because 
no matter how much we love this remote stuff, we are social animals. Yes. And for certain aspects, especially onboarding, training, you know, group hugs kind of thing, mm-hmm. it's useful to actually be able to get together. It's not a, you know, we were all together forever in the NASA control room all the time and are now gone to be remote and never see each other ever again. You know, both of them are sort of extremes, right. uh, probably closer to the, to the gone away part, but never, never, never is a challenge. And so therefore mm-hmm. that might drive some of your need maybe within the same uh, rough geography with enough budget maybe to get together in you know in person in order to celebrate the highs or to do training or to get you know some spe- specialized onboarding going on those kinds of things is a is a necessity so i think you have to have balance yeah. Uh, so um, w- to that end, without summarizing the past 18 months of headlines, both in cybersecurity and the job force at large, we certainly know about the cyber skills gap. And we talk about it here all the time. And the news at large talks about the great resignation and the way that the workforce has become uh, maybe a little more stealthy in terms of where people are are going once they 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 quit jobs that they, you know, f- were untenable during COVID or they just wanted to make a change. So one of the things I discussed with a past guest was how, uh, say, an aspiring cybersecurity professional who might come from a remote or small town with few opportunities, as I said, can do this type of work. And but how to sort of acquire experience to make themselves attractive to jobs in denser employment locations. So speaking to your point about how socks don't have to be in one place, can you talk about how embracing rather than fighting against uh, the fractionalization of the sock can bring new talent into the team? Yeah. So first of all, simply consider non-native English speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, they they can be, and we know from our experience that they are highly effective when it comes to threat hunting um, right. or automation because, you know, they speak um, the appropriate languages of scripting or they speak the appropriate languages of programming. Yep. Maybe don't quite know who the Yankees are and, and yeah. why, you know, Houston won. Yeah. But that's not the only skill that you need in a SOC. So that's one thing. Right. Um, that handicap, you know, which used to trouble people in the past, location, uh, work papers, uh, English skills mm-hmm. can be can be compromised somehow without without affecting your overall outcome. The second thing is we've had to do everything remote. This includes onboarding remote, includes right. training remote, includes interaction remote, it includes meetings remote. It includes customer interactions remote. Even if we're willing to go to a customer location, very often they're not there for us to meet them. And right. so things must be remote. Mm-hmm. And so this opens the door for folks that aren't in maybe major metros within striking distance of Silicon Valley or New York City and can get this kind of stuff. Of course, we're assuming that they have a proper broadband internet always on connection. Yeah, sure. but that has become you know a common thing now in North yes. parts of yeah, I, yeah, totally agree. Uh, so one of the things that I try to be very aware of uh, is the sometimes large gulf between what's being said by the guest on the podcast and what we hear in the comments below the episode. So, you know, it's undeniable that we have a skills gap. There's just so many open roles and that everyone says that we want to hire, you know, you. Yes, you. You just we just need to hear from you. But then the comments below often will say things like, you know, I've got four certs and I've reached out hundreds of places and I can't even get an informational interview. So, you know, we hear both, you know, if you have the passion, we can teach you the tech and we like unconventional backgrounds, bring your psychology, your physics, law, philosophy degree into the discourse. But once the job post is created, it becomes, well, this entry level job requires SEC plus, net plus, CISSP strongly preferred. So what advice do you have for the frustrated, well-studied people in the comments who are still having a hard time getting a foot in the door? What's the missing piece of the puzzle? 
Well, the missing piece of the puzzle, frankly, is non-technical HR teams that mm-hmm. you know perform pattern matching. Mm-hmm. So once the once the recruiting manager releases a job profile, some HR folks that don't know IT security from a hole in the wall, or from an accounting position, or from a shipping clerk position, mm-hmm. um, will only know to pattern match. And so, therefore, whatever words are looked for in the in the job description is what they're looking for, and they're unable to connect uh, that this thing really means the same. So, as a hiring manager, it's important for you to train your HR in order to be able to understand what's being implied instead of just strictly what's being said. Number one, mm-hmm. number two, as a recruiter, you or a recruiting manager, you have to sort of agree that you're going to interview often. And no, yeah. they're not all going to be gems, but right. you never know. Um, yeah. the, the most interesting people, like the comment says, have come from the most unconventional background. That's been true for us um, forever. Uh, but that's on the other side for the uh, job seeker. Uh, in my view, you know, it's a it's a mixed bag. On the on the one hand, the larger companies tend to have more technically aware HR. And mm-hmm. so your, you know, your Google, Microsoft, you know, the usual uh, lot of characters can afford a a a more um, educated HR team that can look past just the pattern matching. Mm-hmm. On the other extreme, the smaller folk, out of necessity, sort of do that. Yeah, it's the mid band that tends to be difficult because you're you're sort of neither a large Microsoft with a hundred thousand plus people, nor right. are you a startup with fifty or a hundred people. So mm-hmm. therefore, those guys can really pretty much go by formula. So as a job seeker, um, that is something to bear in mind. Yeah. Uh, and also, by the way, uh, location plays a difference. The the folks that are in unconventional places. We'll recognize, uh, you know, somebody that is in that unconventional place, whereas, you know, the traditional uh, people that are based in all of the common areas tend to not not sort of do that because they've never really had to. Yes, right. Now, I yeah, I want to sort of drill in on one thing that you said there. It sounds like uh, one piece of the puzzle that I haven't heard anyone say before is you need to get used to not just... I have four, you know, four interviews set up with the people who are the absolute creme de la creme. Like you have to get used to taking a a chance on people who might not line up perfectly and just see what the fit is. And, and, And that might mean asking more abstract questions or interrogating their their other backgrounds. Can you speak to that a little bit? Is that something that that you're involved with as well? I was involved with it quite deeply, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, until recently where I've become responsible for strategy. Right. And I found that, you know, going the 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 traditional manner, releasing a, uh, a requirement, putting it on HR and then assuming that they'll find somebody and then only talking to them after HR has gotten through with them results mm-hmm. in uh, <laughs> folks that maybe have done that same job for 11 years. Yeah. Uh, but but it's the same year repeated. It's Groundhog Day. And you don't really want or enjoy those people at all, even though right. according to HR, they were the ideal candidate, which means that you as a as a recruiting manager have to train your HR team. And then when you, when you speak to these individuals, it's a skill to draw out because sometimes they cannot express it in a manner that mm-hmm. would make it sensible, which is which is making them even that much harder to recruit. Yep. Sometimes you you have to roll the dice and take your chances. Uh, you know, we for example found that having a 
probationary period, especially for the lower positions, was helpful. Mm-hmm. We found that not not being obsessed with educational qualifications was also helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going afield, looking for people that didn't necessarily have that computer science or engineering background, mm-hmm. but had a demonstrated track record of being able to think. Also being patient, uh, which yeah. is not something that we're very well known for because the pressures are intense. If you got an open position, you need it filled day before yesterday. Yes. Yeah, and so yeah. there is that anxiety to take, you know, the best fit, close the position and move along. So it's right. a learned skill. And that's a luxury that either the smaller teams must indulge in mm-hmm. or the larger teams can afford. It's in that yeah. mid band that it becomes really, really painful because you neither have the luxury nor the mm-hmm. training or the wherewithal to do this. That's right. Uh, now, can you speak to uh, things like, you know, if if people are getting filtered out by, uh, as you said, the the sort of um, plunky HR sorting methods or whatever, are there particular things that you like to see on, uh, you know, a would-be SOC uh, person's uh, resume that you sort of puts them at the top of the list? Like, is, are there certain experiences or, uh, you know, you, you had mentioned like people doing one thing for 11 years. Do you like to see people who have who have done a lot of things uh, over the years or, or does that matter necessarily? It does matter. But, you know, the most important thing is, are they curious? Mm-hmm. So we see that the most successful SOC employees are ones that have a mixture of curiosity and experience. But mm-hmm. then if you don't have experience and you haven't done this forever, what's left? What's left is curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, are you teachable and are you wondering about how this stuff works? And can that be demonstrated in some fashion in your resume? You took courses, you you listened to particular uh, speakers, you explored certain topics, you engaged in some activity um, yep. you know, through CompTIA or anywhere else. Uh, that allowed you to explore a particular topic? Mm-hmm. Are you able to speak, read, or write about it and say yeah. something interesting in the resume, in the interview that suggests that even though you may not know everything there is to know about it, you know how to spell it, you checked up on it, you yeah. understood you know, this and the other thing. There's now a wealth of resources on the internet. There's no topic that you cannot explore. So right. are you giving your own time? Uh, yeah. you know, instead of watching Seinfeld again for the nth time, are you prepared <laughs> to look and right. you know, study something that's relevant? That demonstrates curiosity. Yeah. Now, experience will come with time. And once you've got both C and E, you'll be in the top right. What I worry about are the people that don't have any curiosity but have experience. Because these are the ho-hum plodder types. Mm-hmm. And of course, ones that are neither curious nor have the experience are not interesting at all. Yeah. They want to be bootmakers or they want to yeah. you know fry fry uh, uh, fry yeah. fries. And so that's not interesting. But anything else, especially more curious, mm-hmm. is something that we can work with and enjoy. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, you mentioned writing and stuff too. I think we've heard a couple of guests say, and I think you probably can corroborate this too, that that writing uh, blog posts or doing your own investigations on sort of uh, you know problems to be solved. I don't think it necessarily matters if you're reinventing the wheel or that that problem's been solved in a different way or you didn't get all the details right. But like you, you really want to know that they're at least interested enough to say like I'm looking into the sort of problems of the industry. I'm trying to you know figure things out and stuff like that like it's it's a it's a real i I imagine that's got to be a a real leg up right yeah so um 
Uh, okay, so yeah, these are all uh, good tips here. So um, uh, as we wrap up today, Anand, can you tell us about NetSerion, its, its XDR platform, and some of the projects and developments uh, that you're eager to talk about going into 2023? So the Open XDR platform, uh, we're a managed solution. We took all of the software development that we'd done um, and put it into, in, into the cloud and made this available as a managed open platform. And by open, by the way, what we mean is that we recognize that you've already made investments in security and we're interested in not rip and replacing them, but integrating them into the threat detection mm. services that we offer. So that's what open means in our world. Yes. Managed means that bulk of the work really falls on us. Mm -hmm. And your job is to enjoy the benefits, sort of like Uber. You know, you let Uber do yeah. the driving. Right. Um, and you can focus on that nice building on 125th or do email to the spouse in the back without having to worry about tolls and traffic and parking and any of that. There That's what managed means in our world. Mm -hmm. um, what are we interested in doing in 2023 and beyond? A couple mm -hmm. of things. One, uh, the threatscape constantly evolves. And so it's important for us to be able to evolve with it. There are new solutions, new approaches that uh, are coming up. EDR, for instance, wasn't a thing maybe five, seven years ago. It's indispensable now. Right. Um, and so things like that are going to occur if, if for us in industry. One second. Okay, I'm back. Um, okay. The other thing, of course, as I mentioned, is scale. Yes. It's nice to do this um, at the level that we're at, but can we do it 10x? Can we do it globally? This requires a dedication to not just the process, but also automation. And it's a it's a it's uh, one of the two most difficult problems in Silicon Valley, as they say. One is naming the company. Mm -hmm. okay, so we've got Netsurion, and the other is scaling, and we're working on the second one. Got it. Uh, so one last question, uh, the, the the question everyone wants to know, if our listeners want to connect and learn more about AN Ananth or NetSurion, where should they go online? Oh, the website. Yeah. We spent a lot of energy building that up. So netsurion.com is your one-stop place. Okay. Uh, any place they should start first? Do you guys have a blog or or things to sort of get people started on, on what you're about? Um, the blog itself is online, but there is a site, there's a section called Catch of the Day. You mm -hmm. know, when we catch stuff, we publish a vignette that describes what is it that we caught, how was it, uh, how did it manage to escape oh, cool. yeah. all the other things, and then where does it play and how does it get analyzed? What's the lesson to be learned? These are, of course, anonymous, but uh, in general, people love stories. You know, yes. what's going on with the neighbors? What did, how did this actually come about? Mm -hmm. And one of the most effective ways to communicate value or to communicate desired behavior is through a story rather than through a sermon. So the catch of the day would be the best place on the website to go look for that. Love it. All right. And Anand, thank you for your time and all your great insights into the future of socks. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you. Uh, and as always, I'd like to thank you all for listening to and watching Cyberwork Podcast uh, on a larger scale than we've ever seen before. We're delighted to have so many people along for the ride, and we thank you for your support. Uh, go to infosecinstitute.com slash free to get your free cybersecurity talent development ebook. It's got in-depth training plans for the 12 most common roles, including SOC analyst, penetration tester, cloud security engineer, information risk analyst, privacy manager, secure coder, and more. Uh, you can use these plans as is or customize them to create your own unique training plan that aligns with your own career goals. One more time, that's infosecinstitute.com slash free or click the link in the description below. Uh, and thank you once again to A.N. Ananth and that's Surian. And thank you all so much for watching and listening. And as always, we'll talk to you next week. Take care.
about some free cybersecurity training resources for you and your team. Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash free to get eBooks, training guides, and more than 100 cybersecurity training courses, all free for cyber work listeners. Go to infosecinstitute.com slash free and start learning crucial new skills today.